Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us today. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So we're going to jump right in and start off with our lows and highs, and then we'll give you a chance to tell everybody who you are and what you do and, and why you're joining us today. So we'll jump in on that. Irene, why don't you start with your lows sure. and highs for the week? Yeah. My low this week, there's a little backstory to it. Last week, I wanted to go to Farmer's Market because it's out again and I'm so excited because we have a farmer's market again and we get to go out and be around people (laughs) and so I had this big plan of just spending some time downtown and I invited Molly to go and it was Monday and I hadn't seen my husband very much all week so by Thursday when farmer's market came around I called Molly or I texted her and I was like hey I know I invited you to go to this but (laughs) let's not because <laughs> I want to spend some time with Jared. I haven't seen him in a while and got to like connect with him and we're going to go get dinner. It's going to be a cute little family night. She's like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I was like, one, I was feeling bad for having to cancel on you. But then I had this high expectation. I created this image in my head of what's going to happen in farmer's market. We're going to go and walk around and there's going to be all this food there and it's going to be so much fun. And I did not communicate that with Jarrett. <laughs> and so I had this big expectation and this idea of what things were going to be like. And when I got there, I realized, oh, there's no vendors for food. It's just like the farmer. It's a real farmer's market now. Yeah. <laughs> it's not... not a social event anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I go there and I'm like, oh, okay, that's fine. Like, at least I'll get to hang out with Jared a little bit. Um, Jared is downtown every day. He, this is nothing special for him. I go there maybe once every three weeks or something. So going downtown is like a thing for me. For him, it's like, whatever. These are the same people I see every week downtown. All of this is the same thing. So I get there and it's cool. And Layla gets to talk to all the barbers down there. And they're all so happy at the shop. And then we get out and his phone is just blowing up. Like he finished up his last client. He like had to clean up. We were waiting there for a few minutes. And his phone was blowing up. He he has a friend's car here that he's trying to help his friend with. And he's trying to fix up his old car. So he's trying to coordinate all these different appointments. And I'm over here like, oh, we're going to spend all this quality time together. And we don't because his phone's blowing up every five seconds. And he's stressed out. And he's trying to decompress. At least he has like 30 minutes of decompression when he's driving home. And he didn't get that. <laughs> so Layla and I kind of bombard this situation and they're like okay let's do all these things and he just wasn't having it and then I just felt super disappointed so my low of the week was disappointed and frustrated but I didn't communicate my disappointment or my frustration so it just kept building up inside of me and it just turned into this whole thing and I yeah (laughs) so low is disappointment frustration and not communicating any of that and not communicating my expectations of the situation in the first place. So that was fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I could tell like there was like this message that was like, look, I know that I said we were going to do this thing, but I I need this time with my husband and like, I'm really sorry and I'm such a bad friend. And I was like, I forgot you even invited me and I don't want to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, don't worry about it. (laughs) 
but I could sense that like you were like, oh God, like I made this plan and I want to change it. And yeah. that reminds me too. Like I wanted to bring that up. We mentioned about emotional honesty and like being open and honest with your friends when you want to change a plan. In order to be able to do that, you as a friend or receiver of that have to practice being okay with people changing their minds and not taking it personally and like don't be a jerk. You can see like through her text message that she's like feeling anxious about having to do this. And it's like, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. It's okay. For one, I didn't want to go anyway, but even if I did, like she's having a moment or she needs a moment with her husband or whatever. It's a different day and plans change and that's okay. And it's so much easier, I think, for people to be honest when their honesty is met with compassion and empathy and just like don't be a jerk yeah you know so you're welcome yeah thank you for <laughs> receiving my <laughs> and I was so proud of myself because I'm like I'm being I'm being honest with her about why I want to do just not go with her yeah <laughs> but then when I was in that situation where I had to be emotionally honest in the moment and I didn't have a moment to think about it like why am I disappointed right now why am I frustrated right now I couldn't express it I like didn't even know why. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while, like on my drive home, like, oh, I expected all of these things. And I never communicated what it is that I wanted in that situation. And I just shut down when that high expectation didn't get met Mm -hmm. immediately or whatever. Along those lines. (laughs) Your high? My high this week was getting an apartment in Clovis. Or not an apartment, a little house. So I'm going to be going back to school. I'm going to be going back to school in the valley. And I will be driving a lot. But Molly has a house in Clovis that she's going to rent out for a very fair, decent, really friendship price. (laughs) The homie hookup. The homie hookup. It's my mom's house, not mine. I'm not that cool. But (laughs) yeah, I coordinated so that. Yeah, so I get to stay there for four days out of the week, and I just have my own space, and I'm really glad because I won't have to do that drive every single day. So that's my low and high. Right on. Oh, that made me feel very excited. Okay, good. (laughs) I like it. My low, this one's a little tricky because I'm like having an acute low day today. Like there's just a lot of crap going on. So at first I was like, I can't even see past what's happening right now to think about what has happened over the last few days. And like, I can't, I don't know. I don't even know how I feel because all I can think about is what I feel right now. So maybe that's the low. It's just like, whatever. Oh, I know that over the last few days, I've just been feeling like I'm alone in my life right now or my process or my experience. Like it just feels like, I'm in this by myself. And I know that's not true, but when I'm feeling overwhelmed by everything, like it just feels like such a personal experience and it feels very lonely. And again, like being like acutely upset about something, I was still having a hard time figuring out what my high was because I just like can't remember or... It would take me some digging, I guess, to get to it. But I was on call over the weekend and 
that's like a totally different type of work compared to case managing, um, which I'm very overwhelmed by right now, by the way. <laughs> um, when you're working on call in hospice over the weekend, you're just addressing an acute issue, whatever this particular problem is. Okay, you're having shortness of breath. Let me come and help you. Here's some medication. Shortness of breath goes away. I did my job. I leave. I never have to see these people again. It's very like instantly gratifying. And typically the patients meet me with more gratitude and are, they're just grateful because they were in crisis. When you got there, you get there, you solve the problem. They're so thankful. Sometimes they hug. And even though those things sound so minimal, you don't always get that feedback as a case manager coming seeing these people once or twice a week and when seemingly nothing is wrong. It's just a whole different vibe. So it made me feel proud of myself and my abilities that I was able to address people's issues like in their active time of need. They have a problem. I solved it or helped them solve it. And that just made me feel good. And when I'm feeling like I'm struggling in school and I'm struggling at work and I'm just like at 80% in everything I'm doing when I really want to be 100%. When I get into when I was working over the weekend and I could see that my efforts were working and I got that instant gratification. It was just like, oh, I am a good nurse. Oh, I do know what I'm doing and people do appreciate me and that feels nice. So that was my high, I'd say. Feeling appreciated. I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Megan? Do you want to share with us your low and high of the week? Sure. Yeah. My low was definitely just feeling more irritable over the weekend, starting on Friday. I mean, it's still there a little bit even today. It's definitely lessened. But yeah, I just don't really like feeling that way, feeling just kind of on edge with my kids, kind of short with my husband. And I kind of knew like the sources of my irritability. One, just like physically, I haven't been feeling great. I've been having this neck ache in my neck that I just can't massage out or get out. And so I just am grumpy when I don't feel well physically. And then, yeah, a couple other reasons that weren't necessarily something that I could fix in that moment or kind of just get rid of over the weekend. So, yeah, I just was frustrating to feel that irritable and kind of go to some of my go-to coping skills like working out or just some alone time and not have it really help all that much. So I'm grateful that it's kind of lifted a little bit and the sun's out today, which definitely helps. I live in South County. It's gloomy a lot this time of the year, so that doesn't help my irritability. I was just kind of getting down on myself, I think, too. Just frustrated that I was feeling so irritable and couldn't really kind of uh, get myself out of it. And then my high, um, I've just been feeling hopeful in the last um, week or so. You know, just small little things. But even over the weekend, like my husband and I did get to go out and go on a date in downtown Slow, And just seeing like more people out you know, my husband and I are both vaccinated, so we felt comfortable eating inside a restaurant for the first time, which was over a year, which was kind of weird, but nice. 
and um, yeah, just signing my boys up. They're starting um, preschool, both of them again in a few weeks. So that feels really hopeful for all of us <laughs> for them to have that stimulation and, and yeah, just not to have them home all the time. Yeah, just kind of feeling like it's spring, things are blooming, think there's movement happening. Yeah, I'm getting a new office soon for my practice, so that feels good. Like, it just feels like movement, I guess. Yeah. Just hope and that, not feeling just kind of stuck. Yeah, the light at the end of the tunnel. Yes, like yes. So, I've been feeling that definitely in the last week. Well, thank you for sharing with us. You mentioned your practice, so tell us about your practice. What are you, what's your story, what do you do, and how did that all come to be? Just to start off with the basics, my name's Megan Richard, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I have a private practice um, based on the Central Coast. Right now, it's all online, such as the times are with the pandemic, but like I said, I'm going to be moving back into an office in July in Pismo, which I'm really excited about. How I got into private practice kind of dates back a little bit. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but the gist of it, um, I got my undergrad in communications and psychology and then didn't really know what to do with that after I graduated. So I did um, an internship with AmeriCorps through a local foster care agency here in town and worked for them for two years, building up their volunteer department. And through that experience, I interacted with a lot of social workers and therapists, marriage and family therapists, and just kind of got to know more about the field in general. I had a very narrow-minded view, especially of social workers. I thought they just worked in stale concrete buildings and handed out food stamps. I didn't really know like the whole breadth of that field. And so, um, yeah, just being around them, kind of interacting more and seeing what they did, I knew I wanted to go back to school and go to grad school. Um, and so I got my master's in social work from the University of Denver. And then I worked in home health and hospice. Um, as you both know, I worked with both of you over different spans. So I worked in that field for 10 years, two different agencies locally, and got to work with a lot of different programs, you know, hospice side, home health, some... Um, management in there, supervision, and I loved it. It was such a satisfying career. And then things kind of started to shift for me after I had my first son five years ago and then my second son two years ago. This whole world of kind of postpartum counseling and postpartum depression, just kind of both through personal experience and then just kind of professional development just really became my passion. And I knew eventually I wanted to start a private practice for that population. Fast forward to February, 2020, I opened up my private practice with my mom. Actually, we went in together. She's all, she's a marriage and family therapist. Oh, cool. Yeah. We decided, you know, February, 2020 started the new year. That's a great time to start a private practice. And then six weeks later, the pandemic hit. <laughs> and so we got an office in Slow. I, I remember telling my mom, she was all into like, oh, Megan, telehealth. It's going to be a wave of the future of therapy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, mom. Like, I don't want to do that. I'm just going to see clients in person. That's weird. And then six weeks later, I'm like signing up for telehealth, figuring all this out. And this whole year, basically, of my, my first year of private practice has been all telehealth. So it's definitely been an adjustment, not what I was expecting at all. 
but yeah, it's been, it's been a really, really fun journey. I think because of the pandemic, in some ways there was kind of a silver lining for me in that I was able to get more um, training and education and really focus on what niche I wanted because everything kind of just shut down both with my home. So I was still working for home health and hospice when I started my private practice with the idea of kind of doing a transition over like a year. But then when the pandemic hit, things really shut down for my discipline for social workers. It was a lot of just phone calls, facilities and families, you know, weren't really wanting people other than nurses coming in, which was understandable. So that was really slow for me. And then I didn't have a lot of clients who initially wanted to transition to telehealth just because it was all so new and like shocking what's going on in the world. So I really didn't have any work for a couple months. And so I kind of took that as an opportunity to get more training. I became perinatal mental health certified through postpartum support international. And that just opened up a lot of opportunities for me and kind of a niche for my practice. So now my practice about 75% pregnant and postpartum women, which is what I've wanted to do all along. It just kind of, kind of, in some ways got me there a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. And it's been great doing telehealth for that population too, because they're either it's too hard to get out of the house if they have a little one or just, you know, being pregnant. There's so many appointments they have to go to that they just really like being able to log on, have therapy, log off and move on with their day. So it's actually been a good fit for that population to have telehealth. So I also do have a partnership with a couple other organizations in town. So I have my private practice and then I have a partnership with the community counseling center and they're an agency in um, town that provides low cost, short term counseling for low to moderate needs. So clients that contact community counseling center that are on SunCal they can see me through the community counseling center for free because their son Cal pays for their sessions. Mm. So that's a really great thing. And so I see college students through that as well as pregnant and postpartum women that maybe couldn't afford private pay counseling, or maybe their insurance would cover it, but they can't find a provider that is taking that insurance. And then I just started another partnership through the community counseling center, but it's It's kind of confusing. It's in collaboration with the Pregnancy and Parenting Support, PPS agency. How that works is that anyone that goes to Pregnancy and Parenting Support and um, their administration deems that they could benefit from counseling services, they um, have a grant that they can pay for 10 counseling sessions for that person through the Community Counseling Center. So again, it's kind of this like triangulation of agencies and all that. But basically, it's just really great to be able to serve just a myriad of people with different socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, people that maybe, like I said, couldn't afford private pay, but through either the community counseling center or pregnancy and parenting support have access to qualified, certified, licensed therapy therapists. So yeah, I do that as well. Cool. That's cool. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like to have my hand in like several pots. <laughs> yeah. I love that. You mentioned that things kind of shifted for you when you were pregnant. Yeah. And after you had your first and second son, can you tell us a little more about that? How so? How did that shift for you? Yeah, I was, you know, just really into my career. I was in management with um, home health and hospice. Love what I did. 
And then I um, had a really great pregnancy with my first son, but then I experienced postpartum depression after he was born. And I didn't really know it was postpartum depression until I came back to work in that manager role three months. I think I came back to work like three months after he was born and really struggled. I think I lasted about three weeks <laughs> in the management role. And then I was like, okay, tap out. I'm done. I need some, I need some change. Fortunately, management was great. And I was able to go back into the field as a social worker and kind of cut back hours and all of that. But yeah, so it just kind of really opened my eyes to, wow, this is a real thing. Postpartum depression is a real thing. I mean, I'm in the mental health field and I thought before then that I had pretty good coping skills, but they didn't even touch. Well, I shouldn't say they didn't touch, but they weren't enough for what I was experiencing in postpartum depression. Yeah, I mean, some of my signs and symptoms that I had were really like obvious kind of to someone who's in the field or to me now, but um, they just kind of went undiagnosed. I never at my six week follow up having, you know, postpartum OB follow up was never even asked how I was doing, never took like any kind of screening. I was a lot more like focused on my baby and breastfeeding and how all that was going, sleeping. That's surprising. Yeah, it's very different now. Thankfully, this was five years ago, which doesn't seem that long ago. But since then, there's actually been a lot more initiative for through um, the county public health services to have more screenings, both in during pregnancy in the OB offices at the hospital and then in follow-up appointments, not just with your OB, with your um, pediatrician too, for your child. So it was like really different experience having my second child. I was screened like every time. I was also a lot more upfront with my history that I've had postpartum depression. So I think that also was a good precautionary marker just to share what some of my symptoms were if someone, you know, was listening to this and thought, what, what is she talking about? Postpartum depression, you know, irritability was high for me. That's kind of <laughs> one of my things I struggle with, but <laughs> irritability, um, really negative thoughts, just a lot of anger, really labile on my emotions, like not really able to control my emotions, kind of just crying um, on and off throughout the day. And this wasn't every day that I would have all these symptoms, but like one or two each day, I would say for three months. I also had a really difficult time nursing and I think put a lot of too much pressure on myself for that and kind of went into like a spiral depression with that. I think the big like aha for me was when I had a kind of self, not self-harming, I had a thought of wanting like of harming my baby. And I can like remember exactly where I was in the kitchen and all that when I had that thought. He had been screaming for about like a couple hours. <laughs> like I just didn't know how to console him. He was in the swing and I just had lost it. And I remember I was like cutting a sandwich or something and thought, oh, I have this knife. Like, what if I just, you know, hurt him and this could all be over? And I was like, oh boy, okay you need to get help. Like that's not, that's a red flag, Megan. So that was kind of my like, whoa, okay, this is serious. Not everyone has obviously those thoughts when they have postpartum depression, but surprisingly, the more I work with clients, the more I realize like people do have those thoughts, especially when you're sleep deprived for months upon months and you have a screaming, crying baby mm -hmm. yeah. that you don't know how yeah. to console. And like the influx of hormones oh my goodness. Through, through your body and the 
like so many physical and physiological changes happening on top of it. Yeah. And um, I didn't have a lot of social support for my first pregnancy. I had some good friends, but they weren't, they were in South County and we were in Slow at that time. Uh, my family would come on weekends a little bit, but I was just, I remember just being alone physically with my son a lot. And that probably wasn't the healthiest for me. Through that experience and kind of almost like the the lack of screening, really like the lack of support in like a, in a mental health way. I remember going to the only support I could really find was like a support group, but it was more like a nursing support group. And I just still went, even though I couldn't nurse and I'd be like the one mom with the formula bottle. I was like, I don't care. I need to get out of the house. I need like people to talk to. But I just felt discouraged. Like where are the support groups and the therapist and people for the mom? Like where is the support for the mom? Because there's a lot of support for the baby, which is great. And a lot of the focus becomes about the baby after it arrives. But like you said, Molly, like so many changes hormonally, psychologically, environmentally, you know, going on for the mom. So it just really just gave me a lot more awareness and insight and really just kind of this drive to want to provide more support for pregnant and new moms in my practice and moving forward. And it was so interesting having my second son I should also say I went on medication. (laughs) That was a big part of my healing. I listened to your podcast with Kyle and I was like, oh, how funny. I went on Lexapro too. For my sports, this isn't like an ad for Lexapro or anything, but it was just (laughs) (laughs) Lexapro sponsor us. (laughs) (laughs) But it was my, it was like night and day difference. They say it usually takes two to three weeks to kick in. And I was on a low dose. They just prescribed me 20 milligrams, but I could tell after day four, like something had lifted and I just felt more calm, more like myself, less all over the place emotionally. Um, so I stayed on it for two, two and a half years until I wanted to try again for my second son. And I weaned off of it, kind of titrated down over a few months, didn't notice any side effects from that. So that felt really good. Stayed off of it while I was pregnant. I just personally didn't really want to be on it. Didn't feel like I needed to be on it necessarily that much. And then I went right back on it. Like in the hospital, my OB was so great. She's like, do you want that prescription? I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. I want to get right back on that. Yep. (laughs) And I really do feel like that coupled with just more awareness, more, you know, my family and friends had more awareness. Like, okay, Megan's going to need some more support the second time around. And yeah, I just, I had... Yeah, more family involved, more support, but also just just kind of, yeah, an awareness of like, okay, this is kind of my tendency in postpartum. I don't do well with sleep deprivation and kind of just more grace for myself, too, if I was having like a hard day. Like, this will pass. It will get better. It's just really hard to have that perspective your first time around. At least it was for me. So, yeah, so it's it's very personal why I got into this niche You know, I obviously don't tell my story to every client. Sometimes I'll share it if I feel like it's appropriate and it's a way to connect with them or if they're feeling a lot of shame around their story or feeling like they're the only one. You know, I'll I'll share a little bit about mine. It's more so just, you know, a source of my passion and, and my compassion for 
this population. And, you know, it's such a, it's such a treatable condition and it's so common as well. Postpartum support international, you know, has put out research that it's the number one health complication from childbirth. And it's about one in seven women that experience it. And I should say like postpartum depression is the term, but it it's also can be called peripartum depression, which includes pregnancy and or um, postpartum after having the baby. So they even find that some women start to experience signs of, of the depression in pregnancy. What's the difference between like just the baby blues feeling after having a baby compared to postpartum depression? Yeah. Like, is there a normal, is there a normal amount of like sadness and tears and frustration and anger? At what point is it postpartum depression? So again, referencing postpartum support international, they say that, you know, 70% of women experience the baby blues after their baby's born and that lasts anywhere from two to three weeks right after baby's born. And it's tricky, right? Because those symptoms are very similar to postpartum depression, tearfulness, agitation, irritability, overwhelmed, labile emotions, crying, all of that. But it doesn't impair your functioning. You still feel like I can get up in the morning. I can take care of my baby. I can take care of myself. It also doesn't include suicidal ideation for yourself or your baby. Hmm. But yeah, like I said, very common, especially with all those hormones that have just left your body and are rebalancing out and the acute sleep deprivation that's happening those first couple weeks slash months. So that's what we kind of look at. And whenever I have a client that I'm seeing in those first couple weeks, I always kind of view it more as the baby blues. And then if it's about, you know, three weeks to a month out, those symptoms are still happening And then it's coupled with inability to function either in their just daily living situation, um, like I said, caring for themselves, caring for baby, to the point where family and friends are kind of having to step in to help them in that way. Or, um, yeah, I mean, the suicidal ideation or wanting to harm baby is like a big indicator that it's postpartum depression, but it doesn't always, like I said, have to be there. So it's really about duration. Is it just two to three weeks right after baby's born or is it longer than that? And the other piece to know is postpartum depression doesn't have to show up right away either. They could, let's say, go through the baby blues in those first two to three weeks, kind of stabilize hormonally, emotionally, they're feeling okay. And then at six months, you know, maybe they stop nursing at six months and hormonally that kind of sets things off or maybe they're still not sleeping the mom's still not sleeping great at six months and that sets it off or there's other stressors in their life. They have to go back to work, you know, whatever other things can set it off. Postpartum depression can happen anywhere between birth and when the baby's one year. So like in my story, I didn't, you know, it's hard to say if it would have come up in that six week OB screening or not. I don't know. I don't know that it would have. Because for me, it was more around that three months when I returned to work and I noticed like, oh, okay, this isn't getting better. This is just getting worse and I'm not able to manage this now in the work setting. So does that make sense? Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's interesting to hear how you kind of took your personal experience and turned it into fuel for helping other people. So how do you, your sons are now five and two. 
And now you're working with mothers who are either pregnant or postpartum. And I'm sure you hear a lot of tough stuff and help people through some hard things. How do you take care of yourself while taking care of others? I definitely view my mental health and my self-care, or I should just say I view my mental health like as important or even more important than other part, like physical health, emotional health. I mean, it's just, it's part of me. It's not like something separate that I have to kind of try to take care of. It's all, it feels very integrated for me. So thinking about working with clients that maybe there's tough stuff going on that we're processing and how I kind of sit with that and then go about my day or my evening. You know, it's taken some time and practice. It's definitely a skill. I think that you learn as a therapist. I kind of call it a filter. I don't want to have a wall up where I'm just like not letting anything, you know, anything my clients are saying penetrate me, but I also need to have some filter up so that I'm not taking on their emotions or their sadness or their anger or their anxiety. I didn't always have that ability. It definitely as a new social worker or therapist, I would come home pretty emotionally drained. You could ask my husband (laughs) about that. (laughs) But over the years, you know, I've been in this field uh, about 11 years now. It feels good. Like I feel like I can be present and in the moment with clients and be very compassionate and very in tune with them. But then I also can kind of sit back and realize this is not mine to take on. And I'm best able to do that when I am taking care of my mental health and my physical health, my spiritual health, my emotional health on my for myself. So what that looks like for me is I've found like a big part of my mental health is intertwined with my moving my body and like my physical health. So I'm at my best when I'm like moving my body somehow every day. And that's you know, I'm a mom of two. I'm not like doing two hour workouts or anything. It's just like 20 minutes of yoga in the morning, especially on the mornings. So I see clients three days a week. So the mornings that I'm seeing clients during the day, I know I have to get up an extra like half hour early and move my body and do some yoga and some deep breathing, kind of just center myself, get kind of my aches and pains out of my body. And I just, um, I just feel better mentally and emotionally that way. I also, I do meditation. So I've made that a practice even more so in this last year, since being in private practice and during a pandemic and experiencing just a lot more anxiety myself personally, supporting others during a time when I'm also going through a lot. It's an interesting time with the pandemic. So yeah, so what that looks like for me is about like 10 minutes at night after the boys are down, just kind of putting like Um, one hand on my heart, one hand on my belly and just feeling my breath, kind of slowing it down. Sometimes I'll put on a guided meditation, but I've gotten to the point where I just kind of can do it myself now. And that just really relaxes my mind, helps me feel more centered, helps me kind of let go of like the daily stress. And kind of to that point, even during the day, I've noticed when I am feeling anxious or kind of dysregulated in my emotions, I'll kind of pay attention and ask myself like, Hey, where's your breath at right now? And usually it's pretty shallow. Sometimes I feel like I can't even take a breath if I'm like really feeling anxious. Maybe I'm feeling like tightness in my chest. So I've kind of 
got into a habit of like taking that assessment a little bit and then breathing through that. And it could be simple, something as simple as just like three to five breaths as I'm like cooking dinner or doing other things. I'm not just like shutting everything off and going and lying down and breathing. So that's just been like a really important tool that I've kind of integrated, especially this last year. I also, I reach out for support. So I have a really good support system um, with my family. I have a couple therapists in the family. So we, I can reach out to, like I said, my mom or yeah, just other people in my life for support if I'm kind of going through a hard time. I try to make a habit of processing my emotions, you know, within the next day or so. Um, if something's really bothering me or I'm kind of feeling sad or feeling hurt by something, I try to like release that and kind of process through that and not let it just kind of sit with me for too long. My husband's a great support for that. He's he's very willing to have those conversations and is a big support in that way. I've also, you know, in times in my life for my mental health, had to reach out for support through therapy as well. I'm a big proponent of therapists should be in therapy as well throughout their lives Um, because we all have issues. We all have things that come up and, you know, I've benefited from individual therapy, especially in my early 20s through college and then a little bit in my early 30s, relationship stuff, family stuff, and then um, couples therapy too. Me and my husband, we've been married 10 years and we've been to couples therapy a couple times. We actually went to therapy together last year, kind of mid-pandemic. We're having some trouble with my son, with our son, not knowing how to help him through his anxiety and certain issues. And so we're like, you know what? We need we need to talk to a therapist. We this is this is beyond us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I just try to like kind of just assess like on a day-to-day level where my mental health is at and what I'm needing just like I would like physically, am I hungry? Do I need food? Do I need sleep? Kind of just paying attention to that and then if it starts to kind of feel beyond my coping skills and what I have available to me and then reaching out for support with family and friends, or like I said, therapy. Yeah, I think this is great for our audience to hear because this is like free therapy. There's a few things you said in there that my therapist has told me to try and to do. One of them is noticing what my body's doing when I am feeling anxious and taking those deep breaths because I am having those shallow breaths and I've become so, so much more aware of what my body's doing. Or when I'm talking about somebody in particular, I do this and I don't even notice it, but I cl- what I'm doing is like clasping my hands in like a prayer position and holding myself real tight, like inwards. She's like, okay, what do you need to release right now? Like, just let it out and you're in a safe spot. Let's talk. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't even notice that I do that. Like having those conversations sometimes feel so hard and I want to just keep it in. And just once I take that deep breath and relax my body, the words are able to come out a whole lot easier. So thank you for that free therapy session. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Hey, I'm learning it too, right along with you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and it's important to recognize that too. Like we're all professionals in the field. We do these things for a living, that doesn't mean that we don't also need help sometimes. And like you said, like, uh, when you were first experiencing your symptoms, you didn't even really notice it until you were like, Oh, something's happening here. Like, 
you're just in your zone, you're going through your day. And even me, like I'm having all these different emotions. And sometimes it takes us a week or two to catch up to, oh, that's what was happening there. I didn't notice it in the time or I didn't know what was happening until I give myself some time to reflect or maybe someone else points it out. Or for me, if someone's like, how are you? And I start crying. (laughs) Are you okay? No. Oh, shoot. I didn't even know I wasn't that okay. You know, so I love that. Just recognizing that we all need help, even if we do this for a living, even if we're able to help other people through their troubles. It's okay to admit it and ask for help. There are people who do this for a living. We're kind of helping them too, (laughs) if you think about it. So yeah. yeah, there's an expert available probably, and you don't have to go through this alone. I love what you're doing, Megan, in helping people who don't have the resources or the income to find the support that they're needing in the moment of postpartum. A lot of times what I'm seeing is people without a whole lot of support are having more of the postpartum symptoms and showing more of the postpartum depression because they don't have that support. They don't have that family or those friends or even having that healthy lifestyle to to notice these healthy coping mechanisms. And then on top of that, all the hormones and all of the things that are happening in that moment. And then not being able to afford to seek on treatment top of for that, that if you yeah. do recognize that you need help. Yeah. And then there's so much shame surrounding it. I appreciate that you went into detail of some of the feelings that you were having in the moment of um, wanting to hurt your son. And there's no shame in that and telling that story. And the more people that hear that, the more it's like, okay, there's something wrong here. And I need to find some help for that. At what point, Megan, is do you have to step in and report something? Is it if if somebody is telling you some of these things and thoughts that they're having, is there a line drawn at some point? Or what does that look like if somebody's scared to talk about the feelings because they think that their kid is going to be taken away? You know, as a mandated reporter, I always start out my first initial session with each client, just kind of going over that exact thing, letting them know, you know, this is a confidential space. I take that very seriously. This is just between you and I, but my limits to my confidentiality are if you are to share any, you know, intent for self-harm or harming others. And I should say with, with serious intent. So it's not just, oh, I've had these thoughts, but then as a clinician, I'm assessing, oh, okay, do you have a plan? Have you thought about how you would hurt yourself or hurt your baby? Do you have means? Do you have those sharp knives in your home? Do you have that medication? Do you have any guns? That kind of thing. I mean, to be honest, if I was in therapy and I said that comment, what I said to you both of, you know, I had this thought in the kitchen wanting to harm my son so the crying could be over and all of that with the knife, that would be very concerning, right? To a therapist. And my hope would be that they would say, okay, Megan, that sounds serious. Like, let's, let's talk about this. And You know, also the fact that I would have told the therapist, like, but I would never do that. It was just a really scary thought. And I'm embarrassed to tell you. And it was my indicator that I needed to call you and I needed to see the therapist and, you know, get help. 
And the fact that you that you had the decision making ability and like the um the judgment was intact to say, Oh, I'm having a bad thought, I need help, and you instantly got it shows that shows something. <laughs> I don't know, you're the expert. Yeah, it shows <laughs> that, you know, it's more of a, a scary intrusive thought versus an actual thought out plan. When we look at, you know, someone who's saying Again, you know, I've had this scary thought of harming my baby or myself multiple times a day. I don't trust myself. I have, you know, these items in my home. I'm scared I'm going to do something. That's very different, right? Or if you go into a, a postpartum psychosis, you're not even realizing that's a scary thought. A voice in my head is telling me I need to do this and that, you know, no one will miss me or no one will care or miss my baby. So that's kind of the difference to what you're looking at as a therapist. But it is tricky because it's the first time you're meeting a client, you're wanting to build rapport, you're wanting them to trust you, right? You're wanting them to be able to say what they want need to say. And yet, you know, there's this caveat of if I do feel like this is serious, I'll need to create and that's what I always say too in the beginning of the session, then you know, I'll need to create a safety plan for you and reach out to people to make sure that you're safe or your loved one's safe kind of thing. It's tricky. I think I really try to normalize those intrusive, I call them intrusive thoughts. You can call them suicidal thoughts, but especially with around safety and harming your baby, that's kind of that intrusive thought that pops in. You're like, whoa, where did that come from? I don't, I have no intent to do that, but that's scary that I thought that. And something that I kind of learned in my training just because you have an intrusive thought doesn't make it fact. It could either be a self-harming thought. It could be a thought of harming your baby. Or it could just be a thought of, oh my gosh, I'm going to drop my baby and that will harm them. Or, you know, they'll just play out all these scenarios, kind of go right to the worst case scenario ending in, you know, tragedy kind of thing. And so it's really kind of training people of like what that is, what's happening in your mind. When those thoughts come up, that's an intrusive thought. And just because you think it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And kind of looking at tools and ways to kind of decrease that anxiety that comes from the intrusive thought and hopefully decrease the intrusive thoughts over time too. But intrusive thoughts are actually really common in postpartum. I mean, you're sleep deprived, you're, you know, like we talked about, hormonally unbalanced. Um, You might not be getting the best nutrition because you're breastfeeding. You're just trying to like get some food down whenever you can. You're overwhelmed. You're burnt out. You're, you're depressed. You know, you're not having a good time. So um, I just really try to normalize those thoughts for new moms and kind of more being able to name them and not really like play into those fears as well and really work at, okay, like how, how can we kind of lower your anxiety? as a whole so that hopefully intrusive thoughts aren't happening as often, but it's scary. It's scary as a new mom to have those thoughts and be like, Oh my gosh, I never thought I would have a thought like that about my son. And it happened. Yeah. Yeah. And the baby's crying all night for weeks at a time, all day, all night. Yeah. My daughter was sound like you got some experience (laughs) with this. (laughs) My daughter was very colicky for the first like three months. Oh my gosh. She just cried and cried and cried. It was so hard, but I had so much support 
and it was still incredibly hard. And I would just like, I would just break down sometimes. I couldn't sleep. I was so sleep deprived. And I, d- I don't remember ever having those intrusive thoughts, but I was just done. My intrusive thought was like, I could just leave. I could just leave. I'm just going to leave and not come back for like two weeks. She'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> she won't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe something, maybe like I'll fall and get hurt and I could go to the hospital and that will be vacation for a couple of weeks. <laughs> maybe I could break my leg. Yeah. yeah. Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> but I had so much support too. Like I had my mother-in-law at my house all the time. Molly was over. I had my friend Monica over. Jarrett was doing so much. And like I had so much support and so many friends bringing food and anything I needed. Like, I was so lucky. I was so lucky to have that. And even with that, it was still really hard. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how single mothers do it. Oh Oh my goodness. So much respect for single mothers. As um, people who have friends and family who have experienced postpartum depression, and I know for me, I didn't realize it at the time that that's what it was, until they had said, like, oh, this was postpartum depression. And then I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that. I thought that was just a normal part of postpartum life. Life, yeah. yeah. Um, how can we help as friends or family? What can we look for? Or how can we help in those situations? I think it's really important just to be for people to be more educated about what postpartum depression looks like, you know, because like you just said, Irene, you're like, oh, I didn't even know that's what it was or what it's going through. I think we kind of have this view of postpartum depression looking like maybe major depressive disorder where you can't get out of bed all day. You're not showering. Yeah, that's what like in my head, I'm thinking not taking a shower, staying in bed and your baby's just off crying somewhere and you're not doing anything about it. And that's postpartum depression. I mean, that could be some person, some people's version of it, but typically that's not how it's manifested because um, the reality is you have this little crying, helpless babe who needs you to get up them and care for them. So I shouldn't say that it's never that, but for a lot of people, um, and you know, they even say this in the training, like, you know, when a new mom is showing up to an OB appointment or even to therapy or to the doctor or whatever, looking all put together, right? And like, oh, everything's fine. Every, You know, almost like the more put together they are, the more concerned you should be at the six-week <laughs> appointment, right? Like, whoa, yeah. you did your hair? Like, what's going on here? But yeah, so just more education about the signs and symptoms because like I said, it could just be extreme irritability, um, just feeling overwhelmed, not attaching to the baby. We don't really talk about that much, but just not feeling bonded to the baby. I mean, kind of like what you were saying, Irene, like just wanting to get out, like I'm done. Like I don't want this anymore. So it's very hard sometimes to kind of see if you're just looking at outward appearances, right? So I think my biggest takeaway is asking the mom, how are you doing? Because So much focus is on the mom when they're pregnant, but then the baby comes and it's like baby time. Like, oh, the baby's so cute. How is it doing? You know, and maybe you'll get a question about how is breastfeeding going or are you getting sleep at night? It's so much 
more important to ask, like, how are you feeling emotionally? How are you coping with what's going on right now? Just how are you feeling? And, you know, really kind of shifting the focus, not saying the baby shouldn't get some focus, obviously, but if we're looking at how do we help women with postpartum depression, being able to catch that earlier or support them through it, or even just recognize that that's happening, it's asking those questions to the mom, giving them an opportunity to let their guard down and cry and just say, oh, this is horrible. I'm just having such a hard time. I had one client say to me, you know, I didn't even really know I wasn't doing okay until I went to my daughter's like pediatrician appointment. I think it was like two or three weeks. And the pediatrician asked her, how are you doing? And she just lost it. Right. Mm -hmm. And her pediatrician's like, okay, let's get you a card for therapy and let's get, you know, let's, but that could have been totally missed if the, if the pediatrician would have just focused on the baby, which is their job, right. They're a pediatrician. But there's just um, a lot more education, thankfully, on, you know, we also need to be assessing for mom and not to just kind of ride them off after six or eight weeks, you know, just just because you've been cleared by your OB at six or eight weeks does not mean you're okay and that things are like back to normal. I always kind of say to my clients, you know, it, it took 10 months to grow this baby and come full term and deliver the baby. Let's give ourselves 10 months to kind of maybe feel like a semblance of ourself again after we're getting some more sleep, after we're just kind of adjusting to baby being here, bonding with baby, feeling like we have our body back a little bit, feeling a little bit more emotionally sound and stable. So yeah, I think it would just be kind of taking a little bit of the focus off of baby and back to mom of like, how are you really doing? And how can I support you? And usually it's just like someone to listen and hear them and maybe hold their baby so they can go take a nap or go take a shower or just have some time to be by themselves. I know for me, like what I could have used, yeah, is probably people just asking me more how I was doing with the adjustment. And, you know, I, I'm a pretty like forthcoming person, but I just don't remember having a lot of people asking me about that. It was just, you know, it was the first baby, first grandbaby. And there was just so much excitement around him. And I I felt just a little lost and and a lot of shame too, of how I was doing and coping. So I probably wasn't the most forthcoming, but like I said, I didn't even really realize, I thought this is just all new moms are this miserable and having a hard time. So it is, it's, it's really difficult to assess and see. But I I should say that I think we're doing a lot better job, especially in this county, of screening for it, recognizing signs and symptoms, connecting patients and clients to resources and therapists and support groups in the community. Yeah, just not letting it go kind of undiagnosed. Yeah, I have a really good friend that's a doula, and she experienced postpartum depression. And she had her baby before I had mine, and she told me, when after you have your daughter, make sure when people ask what they can do, you give them a job. You tell them what they can do. You could fold my laundry today, please. <laughs> or you could do some dishes today. Or I would love if somebody brought me dinner because that's so not me. And my nature is I'm going to do it all. And I don't want to ask for help. I don't want to look like I need help. I got it all handled. And she's like, 
instructed me specifically, do not do that. Make sure you accept people's help and give them specifics on how they can help you. And I did. And that's, I think, why I felt like I had so much support because I actually said with my words the help that I needed. So that was really great advice from her. Sharing that with everybody else. (laughs) Such good advice. I'm not a mother, so I haven't experienced that part. But I have experienced the value in allowing people to help. If someone says, hey, is there something I can do? I'll hesitate for a minute. And then I'll say, yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. I'm about to give you something. So don't just say this because you're trying to like be nice because I could use some help in this way. It's like a little scary, but then it feels so good. Like I mentioned earlier, I have the tendency to go inward when I'm struggling and I think I'm alone or I feel alone. And so when I do ask someone for help and they help me, it's like a nice warm hug without actually having to hug someone because I'm like, "Eh, I'm not a hugger. But like, doing actionable things. Wow, that feels good. And that makes me feel loved and supported. You know, like, it's a hard thing to, to start doing that. But it really does help. I'm in a I have this intrusive thought right now. (laughs) (laughs) Molly just said, I'm not a I'm not a hugger. But like, Earlier, she was telling me a story about her hugging a patient, and she's told me a couple stories about her hugging, like, patient's family, and I always get so jealous, because I'm like, but you never hug me. No. And I was like, you're not going to try to hug me right now, are you? (laughs) I'm like, see, I'm, like, leaning over a little, because I'm like, this is getting weird. (laughs) And I, like, know that I'm not, like, I'm not going to go in for a hug. But If you were having a meltdown, I would hug you in a, like, but it's like a physiological intervention because I feel like the warmth and the pressure will make you chill out. It's not because I want to like lovingly embrace you. It's because I'm yeah. trying to calm your nerves. <laughs> so it's not going to be for her, but it'll be for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So funny. So that, yeah. that was my intrusive thought. I had to. <laughs> I'm going to. Yeah, I'm jealous that you give your patients hugs. <laughs> I had two patients over this weekend shift or two family members of patients that were just distraught and it was just like I'm just gonna I didn't even think about it I just reached in and was like get in here and hugged it out a little bit and And when she told me that I was so surprised I was like how dare you (laughs) (laughs) oh funny if it was a clinical hug yeah, and yeah. I, like, whispered in the lady's ear. I was like, don't tell anybody I did this. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah. Well, Megan, thank you so much for sharing everything that you um, shared with us today. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, are you accepting new clients or if anybody hears this and thinks, wow, I really like what this girl has to say and I wonder if I can get in and chat with her. How can people find you? Is that an option? Tell us more about that. Yeah, I am accepting new clients. Um, Like I said, it's all telehealth right now and then I'll be offering in-person starting in July. Best way to get a hold of me, um, I would recommend going to my website. It's www.mrichardcounseling.com dot com and my last name Richard is R I C H E R T so M Richard Counseling dot com and um you can get to know me a little bit more my therapy approach my services all of that and then there's a contact form on there also they can call me there's my number on there or email um 
But yeah, I also offer like a free 15 minute consult for um, if they just want to talk to me, get to know me a little bit more, tell me what they're going through, see if my experience would be a good fit for them. And then also people can go to psychology today. I have a profile on there. And I was just going to just say that in general, if people are just wondering, you know, how do I even find a therapist? Sometimes that can just feel so daunting. And like, who's good? You know, I call people, they're full, this and that. Do they take my insurance? Psychologytoday.com is such a great resource because you can do a search by, you know, the area you live in. Right now with telehealth, any California therapist can see clients anywhere in California. So even if you're just looking for someone that specializes in a uh, certain field or has a certain background that you're looking for, you can do a search that way. You can also search by your insurance. So if you have a certain insurance and you want to see what providers take that insurance, you can do it that way too. So um, I always encourage people, you know, do your research. Most therapists have a profile on there. So it has a little like picture of them, a blurb of their experience. Um, Some people have videos. You can kind of, you know, hear the therapist, but it's just a great way to kind of, as the client, do research and feel like you kind of have an idea of the type of therapy that the therapist provides. Okay, awesome. Well, um, we will link your website and all this information in the episode description. Thanks again for joining us today. And for our listeners, thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at That's Not Crazy Podcast and on Facebook at That's Not Crazy. And we'll see you soon. Thanks, Megan. Thanks so much. (laughs) Bye.